The first commercial radio station went on the air on November 2nd, 1920. And over the 50 years that followed, Americans slowly started adopting the radio into their homes. By 1960, almost every household owned a radio. Since then, every subsequent technological advancement has more quickly integrated into our daily lives. And it took only 20 years from its official introduction in 1993 for the internet to become a household staple. And now over 92% of the U.S. population uses the internet. The use of social media and smartphones skyrocketed even more rapidly since they came on the scene in the early 2000s. Since the earliest days of the internet, social scientists, anthropologists, and neuroscientists have been attempting to understand its impact on our society, culture, and mental health. Facebook remains the most widely used social media platform, outpacing Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, and LinkedIn. Whether you are 18 or 62, you can connect with 70% of your peers on Facebook, but different platforms have developed their own demographic niches. For example, Instagram is home to the 18 to 29-year-olds. Women use Pinterest more often, and more than half of Reddit's users are men. Primitive social media platforms existed for the simple purpose of connecting users with friends via online profiles. Once online persona became something to be concerned about, and keeping up with messages, likes, comments, and pokes, (laughs) remember those, became urgent. So what have been the impacts of having a huge social network and an endless stream of content available at your fingertips? In this 360 Perspective episode, we are exploring the effects of social media on mental health, the good and the bad, and how we might be able to use social media as a tool in healthcare. We'd like to thank Untapped Resources for sponsoring Science Rehashed. Untapped Resources is a Boston-based foundation that funds the arts, sciences, education, and creative initiatives of people working to improve lives, celebrate community, and solve local problems. With support from the Untapped Resources grant program, we are committed to making science more inclusive and accessible for scientists and the science curious worldwide. How do you decide what side of yourself you present to the world? At school or at work, you can control how you dress, how you speak, and how you act at a certain extent. But it is very difficult to control every aspect of your natural tendencies. Social media gives us the chance to pick and choose the parts of ourselves to show to the world. In a way, it actually requires it. We're encouraged to make our profiles a caricature of our true selves, exaggerated versions rooted in ground truths. But does amplifying parts of ourselves enrich our sense of identity, or does it reduce it? And we wanted to explore this idea further. So we talked to PhD student Louisa Fassi, who studies how rapid technological growth and online social networks have influenced development in young people. So hi, I'm Luisa. I'm a second year uh, PhD student and I work at the University of Cambridge across two departments, the Department of Psychiatry and the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences uh, Unit. 
So I was following for some time the public debates about social media and mental health. And because there's been this increasing trend of uh, mental health conditions, uh, especially among young people, that has been reported globally in the UK, but also in other countries, both in the global north and global south, I was interested in understanding what might be the reasons for this increase in mental health? Is it because people are becoming more aware that mental health uh, is actually a thing? Or is it because actually there's something that is driving it? And some of the debates really pointed to social media as being kind of the cause for uh, this increase in mental health. And at the beginning, I was skeptical. I was thinking whether this might really be the case. So I started digging into the research and seeing whether there were really evidence for it. And that's how I got uh, I got interested in the field of social media and mental health, basically. Sometimes people like to separate their real life from online life. And I'm wondering to what extent do you think that's even possible, right? Or uh, do you think that social media is sort of like a natural extension of human society and sociality? Or is it like a totally different thing? Yeah, so the question is whether social media is something separate. I, I'm going to reformulate it. So it's something separate where we project parts of our identity or it's kind of an extension. And to what extent we should or does it make sense to keep it as separate or actually combine them, basically? It depends and it might be different from different people. I think it can hardly be the case that it's completely separate your like offline experience and the online one. So the way I look at it is really on a continuum where, of course, you're not going to be hardly the same person online and offline because offline there's so much complexity and nuances that online spaces don't allow you to express. So... I do believe that online versions are somewhat simplified and people try to portray maybe different aspects or they might be selective in the way they choose which aspects of themselves to share. But I do see it more as a, as a continuum rather than something completely separate. And also because in the online spaces, we keep getting feedback about ourselves and the identity that we decide to project. That's, I think is something that we bring offline as well in the way we think of ourselves, in the way that our identity develops, especially during adolescence year. And I think identity formation is probably one of the topics that I'm becoming more and more interested in. Like, how do we grow and like build our own identity in like an online world? How do we integrate feedback from all offline compared to online? And that's, that all relates to this kind of spectrum. Um, yeah. Anecdotally, you know, when I'm scrolling on Instagram Explorer, or my, I don't have a TikTok because I think it's too addictive, but bleak enough, my friends have TikToks. And I've been talking with my friends about how it seems like everything has a label. You, you talking about social media identities or online persona being more simplified than the complex person that you are in real life. And that made, that reminded me of what I've been talking about with my friends, which is that it seems like everything has to have like a label, right? Like you can't just like, like the cozy feeling of the fall, that's cottage core, or you can't just, you know, like reading, uh, I don't know, fairy tales. That's like fairy core. It's, it seems anecdotally like there's pressure to kind of like label every part of yourself and kind of separate it as well like yes oftentimes if you have different identities what you would do is do separate profiles like you can have your like surfing profile your yoga profile your intellectual profile uh, whereas it's harder to kind of have everything in the same profile because then 
uh, people are like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not interested in the surfing. I'm only interested in yoga. <laughs> or yeah. Yeah, and I think that also relates to the fact that because it's used as a platform for like communication and staying informed, people tend to look for specific types of content. So if you actually give a certain type of content, then it is informative. If somebody is interested in that specifically. But of course, then it kind of goes away from reflecting who you are as a person. And it can be argued if that's the goal, right? And I don't know that. Like, is it the goal to actually be you in your, like, totality on social media? Or maybe it shouldn't be. It should be just to, like, portray a certain part. And, yeah, it's hard. Moving on to the social media aspect of your research, which I'm so excited to hear more about, you speak a lot on the nuances about the of the research behind social media and how we shouldn't take a monolithic view of the problem, right? It's all good. It's all bad. But, you know, I'm sure there are some examples of like really good social media use or really bad social media. So could, could you describe for us one of the clear advantages of social media and one of the clear disadvantages of social media use today? Yeah. So in terms of advantages, I think one of the things that research has started to show is that something like digital inclusion can mm -hmm. have real good implications. So the fact that some parts of the world that might be digitally excluded actually get to use technology for education and for other purposes, mm -hmm. and that can have good impact, especially for empowering different minority groups, for instance. So there's another researcher in my group, Sakshi Gai. Uh, she's a third-year PhD student, and she's doing a lot of research on the Global South. And mm -hmm. uh, she has studied how, for instance, digital inclusion and digitalization of women in rural India is actually mm. as good effects. And yeah, so there are some aspects in terms of types of use of social media. I think there's also some research showing that looking at inspirational content mm -hmm. can be beneficial. So exploring one's interest, uh, being exposed to yeah something that is inspirational for young people, as well as connecting and communicating with others. Yeah, like I imagine that connectedness and like finding role models and just kind of being part of the global discourse. It's like a really, you know, it's the best use case, right, of, of social media. Exactly. Especially for those that feel uh, particularly isolated, actually, mm -hmm. it can be empowering to have something like social media or technology as a way of communicating. Absolutely. And what about like one clear disadvantage? Yeah, so I can think of a few. Sticking to the content aspect of things, uh, there are certain types of content that are undeniably harmful for mental health specifically. For instance, exposure to self-harm content. Mm -hmm. I cannot think of any reason for this to be neutral or beneficial. Mm -hmm. So there are certain types of content that can be really harmful. And that, of course, like would be the same in an offline setting. Like exposure yeah. to self-harm in offline, we also wouldn't expect it to be beneficial. But of course... Uh, social media provide a platform for constant and easier access to this type of content. So, right. You can't like look up in the real world. Where can I find this type of content? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So self-harm is like one that I would say is that at the very extreme of the spectrum of being uh, harmful. There's other aspects that are a bit more nuanced, which I think might be harmful for specific groups. Let's mm -hmm. say exposure to thinness ideas and like mm -hmm. um, bodies and specific images of bodies. I think those generally 
exposure to a lot of content related to bodies has been associated with lower mental health and self-esteem, particularly in girls. Mm-hmm. But also this seems to be the case for girls that uh, might have already um, predisposition for like eating disorders or uh, that yeah might not have high self-esteem to begin with. So mm-hmm. I think there are, for instance... So in this case, it's a bit more nuanced. It might not be harmful for everybody, but it could be for specific groups. And so I have a a question about sort of like how you find your research question, right? So to me, thinking about this broad subject like social media and development and mental health and youth, you know, that sounds like such a daunting question, right? Is social media good or bad for youth, you know? Um, So how do you go about breaking this really important research down into bite-sized questions? It's a struggle, I I want to be honest. It's very difficult, like, and it's probably the most difficult part of my research is actually to point down, uh, boil down, like, what do I want to study? Mm Because it's the general question of social media and mental health, like, I don't think is scientifically answerable. But because you can look at it from so many different perspectives, which one do you choose? And I think the link to policy and practical, more practical applications has been very helpful for me to kind of narrow down my scope. Uh, so the way I like I think of formulating my questions, like I ask myself, well, which type of question do I see having an impact in terms of regulations, in terms of telling young people maybe stop doing this type of social mm-hmm. media use and move to these other types of social media use, as well as in terms of who am I like doing this research for? Am I, I doing the research for all adolescents, for adolescents that struggle with something in particular? Like who do I want to help? So I think these two aspects, the who and the like, what practical implications it has, has been helpful for me in deciding. Are you wondering what our team is up to and want to get to know us better? Follow us on Instagram, where you can learn more about our talented team from around the world. Our interests go far beyond science, from illustration to bike riding and more. You can find us on Instagram at Science Rehashed. That's at Science, R-E-H-A-S-H-E-D. Peer into the lives of our team members during their Instagram takeovers. We love featuring our cats. And have more fun with us through giveaways and quizzes. We ask some of our listeners how they use social media. Here's what they had to say. Um, I use it to distract myself from my responsibilities um, and laugh and find something funny and find something relatable, ideally. Um, I use social media mainly to entertain myself. I think I spend most of my time on YouTube just watching people like react to things so I guess I kind of like de-stress and like entertain myself I feel like it's designed to like suck you in like once you start you can't get out like that's the one of the reasons I'm not on TikTok because like I can only have one of those and for me that's Instagram reels right now So we all use social media in a myriad of ways, for entertainment, for information, to stay connected. I deleted all my socials, but I have YouTube. Okay, so Mehdi is chronically offline, but our next guest actually makes her living on it. Some of you may know her from her long history of internet presence in the gaming world, content ranging from Star Wars, tabletop, 
RPGs to hosting on the gaming network than to Twitch streaming on fandom. We talked to Emma Fife about making a career of her fabulous personality and the effects of the blue check mark on her mental well-being. My name is Emma Fife. I am currently a gaming content producer uh, at Fandom. If you're unfamiliar with Fandom, you probably have been to one of Fandom's many, many wikis. Uh, Wikipedia is one that I often cite that people are familiar with, which is the Star Wars wiki, which is basically where fans of Star Wars have all come together to document every single piece of information you could ever possibly want to know about Star Wars. A lot of what I do at Fandom these days is creating branded content for companies that are essentially paying for ad placement within the Fandom platform. Uh, and, you know, we run we run the custom video and stuff that we do in a very targeted sort of way. So, for example, if it's something like I did a project earlier this year for the FDA of all clients, they were effectively anti-smoking PSAs, uh, but they were all around gaming. And so, you know, those ran on our gaming wikis because they target a very specific audience. We have an on-site video player that's able to do that. Um, yeah, but I, uh, man, I've worked in internet forever. Emma has around 24,000 followers on Twitter, 18,000 followers on Instagram, 3,000 on Twitch, over 900 followers on YouTube and over 1,000 on TikTok. She performs for an audience of 77,000 on Fandom, a show on Twitch. And so our audience and Mehdi <laughs> might not be familiar with Twitch as a social platform. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So can totally. You quickly, <laughs> can you quickly explain from your own point of view what the purpose of Twitch is, yeah. what people use it for, and like totally. one more I'm going to throw in there for you, how it fits in the scope of your larger online presence. Twitch as a platform primarily came into notoriety for hosting game streams. So it was effectively initially a platform where people would show up and they would play video games and have a camera on their face and talk to the people that were watching them play games. Now, to me, this concept made perfect sense because when I was a kid, I often would play one-player games together with my brother, or mm -hmm. even more so, I remember when the original Resident Evil came out in 95. Gotcha. 95, 96, somewhere around that. So I was basically nine or 10 years old when this game uh -huh. came out. And so I was a little young to play it, but my friend had a brother who was three years older than us, and he had rented it from Blockbuster and was playing it, okay. and I happened to be like running through the living room where he was playing and I caught him playing some of it. And then I stopped playing with her for the rest of the night because I just sat down to watch him play this video game because I was so invested in what was happening and what was going on with the story and sharing that experience with him. So um, he was like the OJ streamer. Yeah, he was like he was like my OG uh, yeah. <laughs> streamer. So again, the, the concept to me of watching other people play video games, to some people they hear that and they go like, why would anybody want to do that? But it made sense to me because I always liked sharing in the experience of a video game with another person, even if that game was a one-player game. And uh, and so there was this company that was sort of an offshoot of some people at Geek and Sundry had started uh, Hyper RPG, and they basically reached out to me in like early, late 2016, early 2017, and were like, hey, would you want to do a Star Wars tabletop RPG? Uh, and I said, absolutely. Uh, and so through 
my experiences there is where I kind of learned to really appreciate the platform of Twitch and just the community aspect of it that really gets built around certain streamers or streaming Mm -hmm. companies um, where they really are reliant on this idea of of sort of the personality-based content uh, and having the audience really come to love the people who they are seeing on camera and have these really great interactions with them. Um, So, yeah. Have you ever seen yourself working a more traditional nine-to-five career like us? Uh, no, I really haven't. Uh, you know, it's Are funny. Are you calling like, this a nine to five career? It's like a 24 hour career. <laughs> what is this? And this is the second job, right? We are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, I mean, I kind of have, because I am like employed at a company, I have as sort of nine to five as you can get in my field, but it's certainly not a traditional kind of nine to five. Uh, You know, uh, for me, it's like the live streaming stuff we do at Fandom and that I do on my own and that I do for other companies is just like a component of this sort of internet persona, I guess, that I am. So can you can you elaborate a little bit more about the pros and cons of the live streaming career? Yeah, so it's you know the the pros of it is uh <laughs> the the constant external validation. <laughs> you know, you're you're surrounded by that. a lot of yeah, it's constant <laughs> external validation. It's people showing up uh showing a very immediate interest in what you're doing, giving you feedback, interacting with you. Um, you know, one of one of the things that I found to be really positive ab- about it was in 2020, which was when I actually started, you know, to stream on my own personal Twitch channel and not just like making guest appearances on other channels or doing shows for other channels, uh, was that it, it really provided this sort of nice sense of... Uh, doing something uh, that was outside of your home, even though I wasn't going anywhere, and also like companionship because you're interacting with people in chat. And like mostly that is a positive thing, but you do also then have to deal a lot with sort of parasocial relationships um, and, and kind of understanding where to create those boundaries uh, around like, hey, I super appreciate your support and I value you as a part of my community, but like we're not friends in the way that I'm friends with, you know, my neighbor who I know in real life and I'm going to go get dinner with or, you know, something like that. So it comes with its own challenge to to deal and engage with such a large audience. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, especially with things like like within within Twitch, as long as you are sort of keeping it to your own community or other trusted communities, you know, you tend to have generally pretty positive experiences. And of course, as the audience grows exponentially, so do your chances of having negative interactions. Uh but you know with with something like 
having a presence on other social media platforms, but like on Twitter, it's like your tweet is getting retweeted by people. And when people like it, it's showing up on people's timelines. And so inevitably it ends up far removed from anybody that has any sort of level of interest in anything that you're doing. Uh, and, and then you find yourself under attack and you're like, who, who is this person and why do they care? And a lot of, I think, what I've come to learn from many years of navigating mean comments on YouTube and mean tweets, et cetera, is that it's so rarely actually about you. Uh, and it's it's so much more about the user and them feeling this sense of purpose and and anonymity uh, with being on the internet. And I'm wondering a little bit more now about kind of like the separation between like work and like life, right? Um, and so especially because <laughs> yes. like so much of these are is there a are, separation? Yeah, is there? And, you know, like, how has it affected your mental well-being if you're comfortable talking yeah. about that or, like, the, the effect you totally. see on your daily life? Um, it's tough. Uh, I I cannot lie. Uh, you know, they they always talk about the fact they, the royal they being <laughs> just anybody on the internet. Lot, lots of people in my field in particular say, you know, what you see on the internet is always only the best aspects of people's lives. So you can definitely feel like everybody else is getting wins and you aren't because people are posting about their wins. Um, this is just like from a from a professional standpoint and feeling like you need to constantly be engaging and being tapped into what's going on. All of that does get very exhausting. And so I, I remember actually in 2020 when everything when we all had to go into lockdown, I felt this weird sense of calm because I went, oh, cool. The playing field's been leveled. Like, like we're all doing bad out there getting the, <laughs> yeah, we're all doing bad. We're all doing bad. Uh, and yeah, so, so yeah, there's the professional aspect of it, of you're constantly seeing other people in your field posting about all this great stuff that's happening for them. And you're going, well, why not me? Meanwhile, you have to think in the back of your brain, when you post something cool that you're doing, they're thinking, why not me? Um, and then the other aspect is, again, the the people constantly replying to you or tweeting at you and demanding your attention. And I think that you have to get really good at basically saying, you know what, uh, that's enough Twitter for today. I am walking away. Does this separate you from engaging the real world? Um, no. Well, I, I think it did uh, early on. I, I really do. I think, you know, initially when you start getting that like constant external validation from strangers on the internet, it feels so good to be like, People who don't know me in real life know who I am and they care. Um, people will still show up for you even if you're not engaging with them 24-7. Uh, do you think it's it's mostly content-driven influence or personality-driven? I saw somebody post something the other day about the tendency we have to make everything in our lives about content. Uh, so it's like you, you know, going to dinner and taking photos of what you ate and posting that on Instagram and 
sharing stories to show like, look, I'm doing cool things and going out there. It's like this weird, it's this weird microcosm of effectively, effectively creating your own like tabloids almost, I would say. You're, you're essentially curating a narrative around your own life and you have to also find a way to separate your real life from that narrative. Do you think that there's any upsides of social media in terms of its role in generating connectedness or like, you know, cause we're up against, of course there's like very realistic parts of like being connected all the time. Right. But yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's a complicated topic, right? It's not like it's all bad or it's all good or like, it, no, you know. it's not. Oh no. It's such a complicated topic because you know, I see the people in my, just my little personal Twitch community. When I, yeah. you know, stream on my own channel, the people that show up and are in my Discord server and, you know, they all follow me on Twitter and they're all crossovers from other things that I've done, be it, at, you know, Screen Junkies, Collider, Nerdist, yeah. what have you. They've kind of all congregated like the sort of <laughs> Emma super fans, if you will, <laughs> I love kind it. of congregated in, in this one um, little place. And, you know, now all of them, they like make time to play over our Discord server. They like play a D&D game oh, together and they watch movies together. And so it's like there is a really positive aspect of social media of being able to connect with other people that really like the same stuff that you do when you might live in an area where you're not necessarily finding friends who you feel like you connect with on a really deep level and and really like share the same interests and get you. So mm-hmm. there that aspect of it is really positive in that like it does connect these people and I've made great friends from people who I have met over Twitter. Now granted they are for the most part people that are in my field effectively or in adjacent fields, you know, either they're, they're in broadcast or they're, they're in movies and TV or in gaming and in some way or another. Uh, So yeah, it's, it it is, it's a complicated thing because again, like, but then you're also dealing with the, oh, the, the unrealistic expectations Mm -hmm. of life based on what you're seeing online and also dealing with, you know, a, a lot of people yelling at each other and, and you know, the, the way that these algorithms like feed through, you can find yourself really in an echo chamber yeah. uh, where it's just a bunch of people yelling in agreement about stuff. <laughs> Great. Um, so yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's really, it's really complicated. I mean, I think for me, it's that when it comes to social media, uh, engage with what, brings you joy. Uh, you know, for me, I-, I think that when people come back at me when I post something with the same sort of sense of humor that I do, or with like an attempt at a sense of humor, like you can really foster this very positive uh, and enjoyable kind of experience. Um, I think, you know, when when you show up with a specific kind of energy, when people give you that energy back, that's worth giving your energy to. And when people are coming at you with an energy um, that is not what you're putting out there, just ignore it because they're just trying to steal your energy. Um, and uh, it's limited. L- life is uh, too short to get involved in Twitter feuds. <laughs> Thank you.
If you're enjoying the show and want to help us keep making content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed to become a patron for just $3 a month. Or you can become a VIP patron for just $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free Science Rehash water bottle. That's patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed to join. Do our listeners think people spend too much time on social media? Definitely. Um, people spend too much time on social media. Yeah. And I've like taken myself off social media a bunch of times. So would I do it again? For sure. Delete it? I don't think you could. So far, we have talked about the effects of social media on people's mental well-being. But we are going to switch gears and discuss how social media is being used as a platform to express mental health. PhD candidate Sean Kelly researches the patterns on social media that are indicative of mental health disorders like depression. With so much user-generated content online, we have access to people's thoughts, opinions, memories, and more, albeit the filtered versions. Sean and his colleagues have been using algorithmic approaches to identify the language and usage patterns most common in depression, even before people are diagnosed. Yeah, so I did my um, kind of my bachelor's and uh, master's in, in neuroscience, and I really wanted to kind of transition from my PhD into things that are more kind of clinically relevant and applied. And when I started my, my PhD, I was starting in, a, in kind of a new lab, and there wasn't too much data already available to play around with. Um, so basically, I was looking to see how could I start uh, my PhD um, looking at depression vulnerability and trying to understand how some people are more prone to becoming depressed than others. And I started reading a lot about kind of social media work on depression using Twitter or or Reddit. Um, And it seemed like a very new and rich data source that um, we could um, use essentially to be able to monitor depression over much longer periods of time than people are really able to do using kind of lab-based methods. We think for mental health disorders, it doesn't really make sense to think of this kind of latent cause model, because in, under a latent cause model, essentially symptoms, they can have no causal relationships between each other. And the presence of symptoms does not necessarily dictate the, the presence of a disorder. While that really doesn't make sense in, in mental health for depression, you really have to have symptoms in order to be able to be diagnosed with the disorder. And of course, it makes sense that these symptoms should should interact with each other. So if someone's feeling um, say they feel down or they feel more tired, that should then cause them to maybe have some insomnia or should lead to a kind of a cascade of events that can then kind of trigger um, the transitions into um, states of depression. You talked about, uh, you know, going on Reddit and kind of finding these forums, right? And and thinking of this as a rich data set, the social media data is a rich data set. Why are these data like like tweets, for example, so useful when evaluating mental health? Yeah. Uh, so kind of the another thing that's very valuable about them is just over how long kind of periods of time you can you can get data from these um, social media sources. Um, so one of the things that we used um, Twitter data for 
was we can collect data, um, you know, we collected data up to a year prior to when people completed surveys, but you could do it even longer. And it's really not possible to have, say, people rate their mental health um, for a couple of, of years um, and collect really large samples for that. So not only are you getting this very kind of rich emotional um, data set that people are, are already um, providing us, but you're able to capture that data over really long periods of time. Just a couple of clarifying questions. So first, when you're predicting depression and you're building these models, how do you establish the ground truth? We use um, depression questionnaires, so validated questionnaires, um, to establish um, ground truth measures. Um, so that's very tricky, actually, and it's kind of a, a big um, kind of topic of contention in a lot of this work is that um, there's a big trade-off between um, establishing um, valid ground truth measures of depression through, say, questionnaires and then kind of being limited to smaller samples or using um, larger samples, but then having to estimate kind of proxies for depression. So a lot of kind of keywords. So people saying um, I'm depressed or I was diagnosed with depressed. And actually in one of my uh, papers, I, I kind of looked at that distinction to see um, see what the effect would be on kind of predictive performance because we were getting values for prediction that were um, kind of much lower than was reported in the literature. So we kind of wanted to see if we could understand perhaps a bit more about why that was the case. And what we found was that if you're actually using these kind of, um, um, say, worse ground truth estimates of depression using depression keywords, you can actually get much better um, predictive performance than if you're using um, depression questionnaires, which we think are going to be much more um, closely related to that ground truth. Are there any other language cues that you look for? Um, so basically, there's a few different things you can do. One is um, what are kind of called closed library techniques. So these are just to see how many um, words in a tweet or a, a post um, correspond to different categories, like the number of negative words or the number of negative emotions. Um, and then more sophisticated techniques kind of build on that, and they look at how um, words cluster together. So if someone is using, um, say, swear words and negative emotion words together, um, that can also be uh, indicative of depression. Well, that, that will take me, well, remind me of, uh, of a book called We Are Not Ourselves by, uh, I think, Matthew Thomas. And so the, 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 my question is how are we ourselves in, in, in social media and how do people tend to represent themselves on social media and how can you use this to detect mental illness? Like in, in, at the first place, do you think that tweets are an accurate de uh, depictions of a person's internal mental state? You know, it's, it's, it's tricky to, to evaluate in many ways because there is a lot of, of filtering um, on, on, on social media. Um, I think there's a, a famous quote from one paper that's, uh, you know, I, I have problems, but I'm not posting them on, on Facebook necessarily. So it's, um, you know, certainly for a lot of people, they are not showing necessarily their, their true selves. But if you look at what features of language are predictive of depression from social media and features that are, say, predictive of depression from um, essays or kind of blog posts that people write, maybe more kind of personal um, than they would be on social media, they're often um, similar features and there's a lot of convergence in, in the literature around this. Um, so in many ways, it, it's maybe a, li a little worse than you would get, but uh, it's quite similar to what you would see in, in other sources of, of data. 
Um, but what's really cool about social media is that it can be kind of deployed more at, more at scale than these other uh, forms. So kind of um, large-scale population monitoring that's otherwise very difficult to do through through any other sources, as well as providing kind of a rich test bed for, for research questions. When you say monitoring, can you can you a little bit clarify what does monitoring means? Is are like using these social media tweets uh, as an indicator of depression, or are you tracking the progression of mental health? From kind of what we've seen, it wouldn't really be used for monitoring, say, an individual's depression. Um, it seems the models don't perform really well enough um, to kind of track individual health over time. And there are also ethical questions about using social media to make these kind of individual level predictions. But uh, it would be very useful, say, in a kind of a public health context um, for understanding um, broad um, changes in, uh, say, uh, subnational levels of, of mental health. And it's also even been used um, for physical health. There's um, a paper that uh, looked at using Twitter to monitor rates of, um, I believe, cardiovascular health um, at the U.S. county level. Um, so really, we think that for these kind of large scale population um, monitoring, it's social media is kind of the most useful there. That lends itself to my next question. Um, you're talking about monitoring in social media, right? But do you think that social media itself is having a, a negative or positive effect on yes. people's mental health? Yeah. So, um, so it's it's been um, a challenging few years in the, in the literature, seeing kind of what exactly is the effect of social media on on mental health. Um, so a lot of the literature previously did report, you know, these negative associations between social media use and and well being, um, but kind of a lot of that was self-reported use of social media, so not necessarily the, the best measures. And some of the um, the more robust findings now of actual uh, time spent on social media seems to indicate that it has kind of minimal negative effects on, on mental health, um, but also that maybe in certain subgroups that um, there are stronger effects. So I think in, in teenagers, um, particularly the teenage girls, um, the Instagram use has a pretty profound effect, uh, negative effect on, on mental health. So um, it's not um, necessarily um, equally um, distributed through the population. Can one think about expanding this idea of using uh, social media data to smartphone data and can you use that smartphone data to track or monitor mental health? Yeah, uh, there's um, quite a bit of research now out there about um, using what are kind of called passive data features from, from smartphones to understand mental health. So things like physical activity um, or, or location. So people with depression, for instance, tend to spend more time at home and, and don't travel to as, as many locations. And these are all features that can be picked up um, from kind of smartphones and also being done on, on wearables now. So there's a lot of really interest in this um, for being able to do really um, long-term uh, monitoring of depression and also being able to capture some of the behavioral components of depression more accurately than you could get through, um, say, self-reported questionnaires. Um, so it's a very um, hot area of research and also being done in um, other disorders um, such as uh, schizophrenia or anxiety. How early do you think in, in the in mental health decline would you be able to, to detect it? There's a lot of issues right now going on with social media. Um, and a lot of people, um, especially younger people, are kind of moving towards um, more private platforms. Um, 
just to you know end-to-end encrypted platform so their messages aren't as available but people are still looking at sites um like reddit or you know these kind of forums for for understanding their their mental health um so there's still you know a lot of scope for you know monitoring mental or tracking mental health um, through so, through social media even if it's not done necessarily at the individual level with people posting say to facebook or or instagram or, or twitter anymore and um, even things like uh, even apps like like tiktok um you know they're very video based and uh, a lot of the social media research hasn't actually moved um to video yet or even very much to images um it's still very much um text based um a lot of these models um for for mental health based on you know language generally not just depression aren't necessarily very specific to a lot of um these disorders. So even if you develop um, algorithms that can kind of detect depression, they're not necessarily um, very specific to depression. So in one of my kind of research papers, we showed basically that if you train an algorithm on on um, cases of depression, it does also with similar performance to say generalized anxiety or, or OCD and these other kind of conditions. Um, so there's um, still a lot of work that needs to be done to understand maybe uh, symptoms that are more kind of transdiagnostic and not necessarily looking at individual categories um, of mental of mental health um, as we know a lot of these um, you know uh, diagnoses from the the DSM aren't uh, based necessarily in the biology of, of mental health or um, you know in any kind of neural basis so there's a lot of overlap in, in symptoms um, between um, different disorders. So it's very hard to kind of tease apart what is unique to one disorder and and um, what's specific to that particular condition. If you're enjoying this episode, join the conversation with us on Twitter at Science Rehashed, where we will be rehashing this episode. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Science Rehashed to stay in the loop about our new episodes and upcoming interviews. How old were you when you first got a social account? I think I was probably, I was probably in my late 40s or early 50s. What um, was it? Um, it was Facebook, and I did it because at the time I was working in uh, public schools and um, I was working in um, the sort of family engagement field. And one of the things that I was finding was that um, parents had like no idea how to navigate the social media their kids were using, and they were terrified of it. And they thought it was uni- just like universally awful, Mm-mm. but they also had never seen it. And so um, I, it seemed to me that in order to have an intelligent conversation with your kid, you have to know what you're doing. So I would do workshops where I would get the school department to, the school department blocked all social media at that point, And I would get them to unblock it for like an hour in an evening. And I would run a workshop for parents on like, here's how you like, make a Facebook account, you know? <laughs> um, and it was very well attended. Um, and people were, I think, um, 
in those couple of years when that was just like new and hard for people to understand, hard for grown-ups to understand, I think they were really, um, it was really well received. When we asked some of our other listeners how old they were, here's what they had to say. Mm. Middle school, I was probably 12 or 13. Mm. I hate to say it, but I was like 13. I was 10. I was 10 years old. Are you left with more thoughts or questions after listening to a Science Rehash episode? Join us on Twitter at Science Rehashed and leave your comments, thoughts, questions, etc. on the episode Twitter thread to rehash this episode using hashtag SREpisodeRehashed. In 2022, 97% of teenagers reported using the internet on a daily basis, and most of them admitted that it would be hard to give up social media. Not only are most teens on social media every day, but the patterns in which they use it have dramatically shifted in recent years. Since 2014, the number of teens who say they are on the internet constantly has doubled, and almost all of them say they use it many times per day. This speaks volumes to the culture shift in how teens exist in their daily lives and what's required of them in their social spheres. But researchers are leveraging social media and technology as a whole in hopes to combat mental health issues. At Northwestern University, Dr. Ashley Knapp is developing digital tools that will give teens coping strategies to use during moments of anxiety. Most importantly, her team is working to ensure that these tools will be accessible and engaging. So I am Dr. Ashley Knapp. I'm an assistant professor at the med school within Northwestern University, so Feinberg School of Medicine in particular. My research mainly focuses um, on working with teens and working with teens around mental health. So I'm really interested in how do we use technology and in, in particular smartphones and um, and uh web programs to help kids get more access to mental health um, mental health uh, literacy as well as tools and things like that. Um, so I'm currently working with the library actually to think through how can we get digital mental health tools within the library since libraries open to the public and um, a really welcoming place for teens. You have conducted several studies on this topic, especially in teenagers. The question is, so what inspired you to explore these questions through research? Ooh, that's a good question. And so I will say um, I I likely will go towards social media, but in particular, um, I'm using more technology. Uh, and I think what kind of led me there, because I first started off just researching anxiety and how to help teens with anxiety just manage. Um, and I think as cell phones became more popular and as technology became more popular and broadband, um, it just seemed like a really or a lot easier way to reach teens and increase accessibility. So we have so many of these resources available that honestly are just dying in research laboratories and not getting into the hands that need them. And so um, I think that's probably the biggest reason was just how do we increase accessibility and just get the tools to the teens. Can you go into a little bit more detail about these digital mental health tools? Like yeah. what are some examples and how have they changed, right? You mentioned that a lot of them are dying in these research labs. So what are these advances? Um, let's see. So I think examples that are more commercial based would be like Calm um, or Wobot, if you've seen like that. Those are more app based. So there was this huge wave of 
digital mental health apps and kind of following that train. But in, acad- in academia, we realize it's really difficult to keep up with the all, all the money that's getting thrown at companies and mental health um, in, in our world. And so what we've kind of done, I guess, recently is take a step back and think, okay, how can we really create programs within within the resources that we have and and then also get them to the teams that need them. Um, but example programs, let's see. So uh, I'm working with the library right now, so I can give an example of that. Um, it's been pretty fun because we really take an approach of, of, of co-design and working with teens at the library and with staff at the library. So what we've been doing lately is instead of there's, there, I mean, there are social workers in libraries recently, which is pretty cool, but there's not typically a therapist in libraries. Um, and so what we're trying to do is it won't necessarily be therapy. It won't necessarily be anything like that, but it will be how do we teach coping skills? Um, and we're actually at the really early stages. It's pretty cool. So we are going to do some low fidelity prototyping or just get stuff, get some wireframes or put some things in front of the teens. And they'll be like, we love this or we hate this. <laughs> and what's oh, nicer, cool. we, yeah. Yeah, the library teens is they tell you um, what they think, <laughs> which I personally love. I'm like, I need to know where we stand. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think, unfortunately, the reason why they're dying is is uh, the ivory tower syndrome, um, where we're not just, and, and thankfully, there's this whole science that was born, implementation science, that really works on, okay, we can test these in the, we can test these uh, programs in the laboratory, but we need to actually test them in environments like libraries or schools, we need to actually get them out. Oh, and then so the other big thing that we're probably likely going to put in, but again, it's pretty cool, because we're just at the beginning stages. Um, is trying to get um, increased access. So what um, mental health resources are already in the community that aren't really realized or um, and especially known by parents and teens. So that will likely could be so a little kind of step before therapy. This is more hopefully a prevention approach or at least getting folks kind of a warm handoff um, to treatment within the community. I see. So it's more like a you're in the middle of an anxiety episode. You don't know what to do. Here's some yeah. tools to cope before exactly. we before you can get to therapy. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully we'll m- make it in an engaging ways. And that's why I love having teen investigators and working with teens is we can kind of think through, okay, we come in with this clinical concept or what we know of the literature. And then how do we make this where you like it <laughs> and where yeah. you're not just going to not wor- use it, or you're just going to use it for a day or two and, and, lot, lot, uh, and then lop off. So there's been some folks that um, have tried to work on engagement. So every time you do a coping strategy, you, your tree grows or you get to put a fish in the pond. <laughs> yeah. And so those I've heard recently are pretty lame, according to the teens. So we're going to try <laughs> to think of, of other engagement techniques um, such as that. So we can kind of marry the science with what the kids will actually, or I, they don't like when I say kids, uh, rightfully so, the teens, um, th- what they will actually enjoy and um, kind of log on. I've seen those like ads on Instagram for these apps that are like trying to keep a fish alive has like really helped. Like I can't, you know, I can't yeah. deal with my own task of trying to keep a fish alive or water my plants yep. on the app. Yeah. Yes, so exactly. Totally, that's so yeah. funny. That's awesome. And um, how do these like the tools that you think of or how do these um, like coping mechanisms change when you're thinking about teens and the best way to help mm. teens? Oh, I love this question. Oh, it's such a good question because what, 
one of my soapboxes, so get me off of it um, when I'm on it too long. <laughs> but as we take we take tools that work for adults and then we try to downsize them for teens. And yes, of course, they're humans, but they're so different. They're going through so many different things. And so um, I guess I'm trying to think of the I think recently I've just been trying to start kind of at ground zero. And I've just one of my questions I just asked teens are, hey, how do you feel anxiety? Because we've defined this for you so many times. But how do you how do you what? What physical sensations do you have? What cog- or thoughts do you have? Um, and what emotions do you have? So I think it's really, or at least for me, starting at ground zero, especially at the different populations. So not trying to assume that the teens I worked with in Arkansas are the same that the teens I work with in Chicago or let's say New Hampshire where I lived. Um, yeah, so I think it's really just from the beginning trying to think through how do we define anxiety, but then how can then we map tools to match their specific anxiety needs? Like, how do you think growing up in the digital age has impacted uh, teenagers? And that could be either they are the ones who are, you know, glued to their phone and growing up kind of with all of this media access all around them, or not being able to have access to their phone, to a phone or to a computer while you're growing up with everyone else who, who is leading these lives on social media. Let's say that they do have access to a cell phone or they do have access to a web program where they're like, oh, I, uh, what's that coping score? I, I need to learn a new strategy because I don't you know, want to freak out on my parents or something like that. Um, what we've noticed a lot is teens that do have access to, to cell phones, that that gets taken away as punishment. And usually whenever they're having these big feelings. And so what I've heard from teens is like, oh, I'm having these big feelings, but my, my phone's getting taken away as punishment, or I can't use it on weekends, or I can't use it past 9 p.m. whenever I'm, I can't sleep and I'm having all these thoughts. And so I think that's one uh, a, a different accessibility issue, but one that I've um, kind of found growing up in the digital age is something to think about that we never really have. Of if parents are using this as a punishment technique, uh, it could actually be doing a disservice to the teens whenever they need to, or, or they would be helped by, hey, here's a, I don't know, an affirmation, or here's a, um, a strategy you could use. You you have been very outspoken about accessibility in Twitter and about digital tools. Uh, can you walk us through how accessibility may be a problem for some kids or teens and if there is anything clinician can do to increase equity? Yeah, no, I think, so this is a really cool question and honestly one that my mind has um, kind of grown in. So first, when I, I guess like five years ago, I wrote a grant and I'm like, Pew Research says that, and it does, that 93% <laughs> of teens have access to smartphones. And so that's how I write my grant, you know, like, so this is why you need to give me, give me money to do my research because all teens have cell phones. But then I think when you look more granular, it's a lot different. So especially teens that I work with that are either from disadvantaged neighborhoods or just um, they don't have consistent access. So yes, 93% of teens typically have access, but they may be sharing it with their brother or sister or their mom. So I think I would say the the majority of teens or at least let's say over 50% that it's such an easy way to get to them because they their their phone is glued to their hand like actually most adults we know. But then I think what I've had to take a step back is not assume all teens have access to cell phones and think about, okay, web programs. And since, and we've been kind of doing some fun things of since, uh, fun things, nerdy fun things, um, of <laughs> if every teen's typically in, or a lot of high schools given a Chromebook. So they at least have that technology or the libraries I work with, they have, um, uh, uh, laptops or computers that teens have access to, and they can jump from broadband at, 
um, school to the library. Some kids even use it like at McDonald's or um, things like that. So I, so I think what I've been thinking about is, okay, we need to not only make native apps, which has been a really big push the last, I guess, five, 10 years, but also we need to make them um, web page accessible. Those typically um, teens can, even if they don't have it at home, they can go, like I said, to the library and have broadband or access to technology. They can, maybe if they're given Chromebooks, like I mentioned at school, they can use that there. So I think it's, it's just starting from the beginning of what's the platform and how do we think through that? And then I think the other big piece with equity is what we've done for so long in, in research is really base our research on white families and mid to high SES families. So we haven't been creating for everyone. We're just taking families that are easy to get in the laboratory or that are easy to, to access. So I think the other big equity piece is, and what I've really been trying to do is take a step back and, and like ask that anxiety question. So is this, is anxiety the same for, again, teens in Chicago versus New Hampshire versus um, versus uh, Arkansas or wherever people um, are and do research? Is that the same? And then do these skills even help you? Um, my dream would be uh, if we can just create teams that actually really work for, create a set of tools that work for everyone and think through of, okay, where is the endpoint? We've made these tools, but we haven't put them in organizations. So it's it's right now, unfortunately, pretty novel to think of libraries or to think of things like that. As we just haven't taken it from the laboratory to the organization. So that's another big vision is getting a set of tools that works for everyone or in different ways work caters to the needs of everyone, but then also getting in the hands and, and making it sustainable. And I think... One thing I would add, it's super important yeah, to, get, to get it to the hands of not only the privileged community, but the underserved yes, uh, people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. And I think that's what, um, I, they, and thank you. What I was trying to say with the get, uh, make sure meets all needs is that we've just catered to this one population, but how do we get it to everyone, and especially the underserved and it, we just we haven't done really well at at at, at um, I think knowing their needs a and then creating co-creating programs with them um, to really meet those needs and uh, yeah so I completely agree and um, and speaking of uh, using digital tools and, and accessing these things like affirmations or, or tools on your phone what are ways that our listeners for example could utilize digital mental health tools at home are there easy takeaways of course not it's a complex research topic what like what's the low hanging fruit like any takeaways that listeners can begin implementing right away like whether they're in the middle of you know um dealing with a mental health issue yeah so i will say there's really wonderful resources online um so mental health america you can go on um especially teens you can take uh, little quizzes and then they'll shoot you two resources um i i have a nerdy lab website that we also um have been really thoughtful of putting mental health resources together so there's there's handoffs folk um, handouts folks can go to that have um for instance uh uh, a suicide helpline, or it, we always have Mental Health America, because they're so rich with their resources. Um, so there's so much out there that we've, um, and I can't even take credit. My research team gets all the credit. They've taken so much time to pull all these different resources and put them together. Um, and then ooh, one other one that I really like is called Cyber Guide, um, P-S-Y-B-E-R Guide. And um, it's Stephen Schuler and his team, Dr. Stephen Schuler. He's fabulous um, uh, psychologist uh, in the research world as well. And he and him and his team have pulled all the mental health, mental health apps together. They've taken time to actually rate mental health apps because that's also really tough right now is there's not a lot of, especially with it, when it comes to more companies rather than research, there's not a lot of oversight 
I do feel that technology gets a bad rap. Um, and I, I agree that it can do a lot of harm and social media in particular can do a lot of harm. But I hope we just don't throw all of it out then. And is there, I, I think, and I guess what my, where my heart is, what I really try to do is how do we use technology for, for the good? It's a double-edged sword. And how can we use this in order to increase access? How can we use this in order to get tools to folks that need it? So I think that would be maybe a biggest takeaway is yes, I, I certainly agree that there is harm there. And how can we use it for the good? And, and, and for, for our listeners, whoever is listening, we're going to put a list of these resources in our description for this episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Emma Brandt and Lauren Granada, edited by Rakudzo Kanyemba, and mixed by Vesna Ilieska. The cover art for this episode was made by our creative director, Emma Brand. We'd also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehashed for making this episode possible. Today, we're highlighting one of our Science Rehashed ambassadors, Dr. Suad Narsis. Suad is an active ecologist from Algeria with a PhD in animal biology. She's also a trainer in environmental education for sustainable development, green spaces management techniques, and building projects. Suad's favorite quote is, science knows no country because knowledge belongs to humanity and is the torch which illuminates the world. Thanks for your hard work, Suad. If you're interested in our ambassador program, find more information on our website, sciencerehashed.com.